doing a sermon series through the book of Luke. We are going to continue that sermon series through the book of Luke, but we are going to take a three-week break from that series because as I start my new role here at Lakes Free as your new senior pastor, I thought it would be good for us to just collectively spend some time talking about the priorities that we are going to champion as a church going forward under my leadership as your new shepherd here at Lakes Free. And so that's where my heart is, and that's what I want to share with you today, some, uh, some thoughts on that. We're going to be in this series for three weeks, then we're going to have a special Christmas Eve sermon on the 24th, and then we will start back in our series in the book of Luke. So don't be afraid, we're going to get back to Luke if, uh, if that's something you're concerned about. Uh, that's going to be my priority to uh, finish that series as well. As we start this new series today titled A Church Alive, and uh, today's message, Grounded in Truth, uh, I've, got, uh, I've got a little illustration I want to share with us this morning. Uh, first of all, we got some great new Christmas decorations up here on stage, and we need to thank uh, Paul and Pat Post. They did a lot of hard work on that. I think you had some other helpers too, but we're very grateful for the, the work that they do in making our uh, sanctuary so beautiful for different seasons and different message series. But uh, I brought my own personal illustration today. I've got some beautiful Christmas plants up here, and uh, I, need, I need a volunteer to help me out here this morning. So um, actually, Kevin, you're smiling at me. I think you could, uh, you're, you're a smart guy. I mean, you do a lot with, uh, well, technical stuff, right? You're pretty technically savvy. So come on up, Kevin. Um, now, if you would, just kind of stand behind here with me so our friends can see. Now, I've got, uh, I've got three different Christmas plants here this morning. And, uh, and Kevin, you are, like I said, you're a smart guy. You know a lot of techie type stuff, right? Yep. So you can, uh, you'll verify my, uh, my credentialing of you here. Now, Kevin, based on your expert opinion, by the way, I didn't tell you about this in advance, right? <laughs> like not. this is your first time. <laughs> All right, first time. All right, now, based on your expert opinion, I want you to examine these three plants and, and tell me just some of the key features about them that distinguish them from each other. What, what are the, some of the differences you notice in these three particular plants we have up here? Poinsettias, by the way, they're Christmas poinsettias. That is. <laughs> so I'll just take a quick look. And, well, this one's dead. All right, well, hold on. Let's make sure everybody can hear you. There you go, get your uh, robotic arm working. Uh, I think this one's dead. Looks now, like my plants. So that one is dead, like your plants at home, all right? Yeah. Um, now, that's not your wife's fault, I'm sure. No. Okay, no. That's, on, that's on you. Now, how would you, why would you characterize that as a dead plant? I mean, what, what strikes you as that, you know, why do you look at dried that and up, say dead? Dried up, leaves are about to fall off. Okay. What's it's the, actually moist. I don't know why it die. I think it was outside, maybe oh. cold. Ah. Not so much moist, but cold. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, so we got, a, we got uh, dried up leaves, poor foundation, poor soil, uh, not bearing much fruit, no. pretty obviously dead. Pretty obvious. Okay, how about our other two plants here this morning? Uh, this one looks really nice, very flourishing, but doesn't feel quite the same. If you were to use one <laughs> word to describe this plant, what would you say it is? Uh, fake. Fake. <laughs> All right. All right. I, I, I think that's a fair characterization. Yeah. Now, what about this plant says fake to you? Uh, I actually had to feel it first, but... Because it looks pretty it, it, good, right? It does look pretty good. But it's fake. <laughs> it's not a real plant. <laughs> and, and, and how do you know that? Because there is no dirt in it. And okay. there, it's 
It's more like plastic. Okay, no foundation, just, <laughs> no you know, just but, but pretty. Yeah, it okay. looks nice. And then how about our uh, third option here? This one looks nice, very healthy. Okay. Beautiful how would you plant, describe actually. that? One word. Alive. Alive. All right, good word. You, you, this is like he looked at my sermon notes. I like this. But we didn't talk no, about this at all. Good, all right. So we got an alive plant. What, do, what, what characteristics say alive to you when you look at this plant? Um, just the health of it, I guess, the, the characteristics. It's got a good foundation. It's got you know, solid, soil, solid soil, yep. pretty leaves, flowering, bearing right. fruit, right? Yes, very okay. nice. So we have an alive plant. We do. All right. Is this guy good or what? <laughs> Give him a big round of applause. Thanks, brother. I, I knew I could count on Kevin, all right? Now, what we've seen here this morning, we have three plants. We have one that's obviously dead. We have another plant that is obviously fake, in Kevin's words, and another plant that is thriving. It's alive. And I share this illustration with us this morning because churches, friends, are a lot like plants. And when we look at the various churches in our world today, we see churches, we see some that are just obviously dead or in the process of quickly dying. The, the, the foundation that they were once rooted in has dried up. The soil's gone bad. There's no more growth happening. In fact, they're shriveling and they are decaying. And there are many churches, sadly, in our world that have, that have taken on this very appearance. They're just dying or outright dead because they've lost their priority. They've lost their foundation. They've lost the nourishment that gives them their vitality. There are other churches in our world today, it's sort of like this plant in the middle that, uh, as Kevin said, are, are fake. And what I mean by that I, is, is simply that there are a lot of churches that from an outward appearance, they look good. They look healthy, they look vibrant, they look alive, looks like something's going on. But when you really get inside and examine the stuff that makes a plant a plant, you recognize that there's really no foundation there. You recognize that there's no, there's no life essence in there. There's no discipleship happening. There's no growth happening. There's no fruit actually being born. Outwardly, it gives the appearance of life, but inwardly, there's no real life or growth taking place. And again, sadly, there are plenty of churches like that in our world. But then there are other churches like our third plant this morning that are healthy, that are vibrant, that are thriving. They're growing. They're, they're alive. And, and when you examine these churches, you recognize that they are rooted in a firm foundation. They are being nourished properly. They are growing up in health. They are bearing fruit. And, and when I look at this plant, I'm reminded of our church over the past 32 years and, and the many miraculous things that God has done here at Lakes Free. I don't know if you were with us two weeks ago, but wasn't that an awesome celebration? Just celebrating Pastor Rick's 32 years of ministry and then, you know, that baton passing ceremony we had. I mean, what an honor for me to be a part of it, but I was just especially blessed to have all of you with me uh, sharing in that. I mean, I, I love you guys. I love this church. And, and it was just such a great weekend to think about the many amazing things that God has done over the years to produce a church of, of people who are alive and growing in their faith, rooted in the truth of the word of God, bearing fruit, going out into our world, making a difference. And friends, I tell you, as your pastor, I'm committed to keeping us moving in that direction as a church alive, a church thriving in health. But I want to give you a word of caution here this morning. A church alive can quickly become a church dead. 
You know, a living plant can quickly become a decaying plant. And all it takes is for that plant to lose the soil in which it grows, the foundation in which it grows. All it takes is that plant to lose its nourishment, its vitality. And and in the same way, that can happen to us individually and it can happen to us collectively as a church. If we ever lose sight of the priorities that make this church a living, healthy, thriving, vibrant church, if we ever lose sight of those priorities, we are doomed, my friends. We're destined to become just another dead church. And I tell you what, I don't want to be a part of a dead church. I don't think anybody here wants to be a part of a dead church. I would venture to guess we don't even want to be a part of a fake church. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't care how great our building looks and how good our worship looks and, you know, how much staff we have. If the, if the people inside of us aren't living and thriving and growing, I mean, I don't want that either. I want to be a part of a church that is exciting, that's vibrant, that's healthy. And so I am going to vow to you as your pastor, we're going to continue to highlight the priorities that God has highlighted here at Lakes Free to make this place what it is a healthy, alive, vibrant, thriving church. And so over the course of the next three weeks, we are going to look at three priorities that I promise you I'm going to champion as your new senior pastor. Three priorities of a healthy church. And these three priorities we're going to take a look at them in the coming weeks are these. A thriving, alive church is a church that is grounded in truth. Its soil is fertile, in other words. Its roots go deep into the word of God, into the truth of God. And that is the ultimate source of its founding and its growth. It comes from the soil in which it's planted. And friends, as your pastor, I promise you, we will be a church that is rooted and grounded in the word of God. We're also going to look in the coming weeks of our call to be growing in grace. This is going to be our second priority as a church together. We are going to be a church of people growing in grace. And what I mean by that is, is we are going to learn and know our Savior more and more. We're going to seek after Jesus more and more. We're going to seek to grow and be further conformed into his image so that Christ does his transforming work in each of our hearts individually and then collectively as a church. I promise you our goal is that we will never be mistaken for anything but a place of, you know, redeem sinners who welcome other prodigals into our presence. We're going to be a church of people who champion the grace of Jesus Christ because we've experienced that grace in our own lives. And then thirdly, we're going to be a church that goes in faith, going in faith. And what I mean by that is a healthy, alive, vibrant plant is a plant that's bearing fruit. And it's the same thing with God's people and God's church. A healthy church alive, friends, is a church that bears fruit. It's a church where our people are not only being fed and growing ourselves, but we are then going out as ambassadors of Jesus Christ into the world. We're going out as the hands and feet of Jesus. We're going out to serve others, to love others, to bring the good news to others. And that's our commission as the church. And I promise you, if we champion these three priorities here at Lakes Free, God is not only going to give us another 32 years of faithful and healthy ministry, but he will give us many more even beyond that if we keep our focus set on the priorities of what makes a church, a church alive. You excited about that? I hope so, because that's what we're going to be about. If, If you're not excited about that, you're probably in the wrong place, all right? Because these are going to be our priorities going forward as a church, as long as you allow me to be your senior pastor here. So today what I want to do is I want to spend some time focusing on priority number one. Priority number one, and that is this. To be a church alive, we must continue to be a church 
that is grounded in truth. We need to be a church that is grounded in truth. And, and our ultimate truth as followers of Jesus is the very word of God that he has given us to lead us and guide us. We need to be a church grounded in truth. Some of you know that I've been involved in uh, uh, apologetics ministry over the years. And one of the really unique opportunities I've had uh, a couple occasions is to uh, minister alongside of my friend Sean McDowell, who we've had here at Lakes Free, the son of Josh McDowell. And uh, Sean is a really well-known apologist. Uh, he's written, you know, 20-some books, speaks all over the world. But uh, Sean and I are buddies, and he's invited me to join him and take along on some of his uh, apologetic adventures over the years. And uh, one of the opportunities I had was to join Sean on an uh, outreach trip to the University of California, Berkeley. And I've shared some of my experiences there with you in the past. But uh, one of the really unique uh, things that we did on our trip to UC Berkeley uh, Sean had about 20 high school students from the Christian high school where he teaches part-time who were with us on this trip. And it was kind of an opportunity for them to be exposed to some of the things that you see out in the world and to, to receive some apologetic training. And then we actually went along with these students as they did campus outreach with, uh, with students on the university. And so on Saturday afternoon when we were at UC Berkeley, I joined a group of about two or three students and uh, we went out into the campus commons area and these students had been equipped with surveys that they were going to use to initiate conversations with the college students. And I remember we went up and talked to this one individual, a young man who was, uh, I think, a sophomore in college. And the students went up and approached him, and they started asking him questions based on the, the surveys that they were given. And, and again, the goal was to initiate spiritual conversations. One of the questions on the surveys that we asked the students that afternoon was, what is your view of truth? What is your view of truth? And so when the students asked this young man, tell us, what is your view of truth? This young man sim simply said, well, there is no truth. And I could tell that the students were kind of, you know, taken aback. They weren't quite sure what to say to that. So I stepped in and I said, well, that's a really interesting, interesting answer. There is no truth. I said, uh, how did you come to that conclusion? And he said, well, you know, I used to believe in truth, but, but when I came to the university, I've taken some philosophy courses, and, and I've really just come to see that there is no truth. And I said, well, hold, hold on a second. Can you just repeat that phrase for me again? He said, okay, uh, there is no truth. I said, wait a minute, say that one more time. There is no truth. And as he said it a couple of times, pretty soon he got this big smile on his face and he started to realize what maybe some of you are recognizing. In the very act of making this declaration, there is no truth, what is this young man doing? He's making a truth claim, right? He's admitting there's at least one truth, that there is no truth, right? So what I pointed out to this young man, I said, sir, what you're doing here is actually a self-contradiction. You're refuting your own position. You're telling me there is no truth, and yet to even make that declaration, you yourself are making a truth claim. So there is at least some truth. And he said, yeah, I see your point. And, and I said, so maybe what you're trying to say is not that there's no truth, but maybe what you're really trying to say, and I think this is where you're going, and he was kind of tracking with me. I said, maybe where you're going is that maybe truth is subjective and relative. And this young man, he sort of started shaking his head. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Sorry, my mistake. And I said, well, what do you mean by subjective and relative? And he said, well, you know, uh, you know, we all have our own truth. 
I have my truth, you have your truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And I said, okay, now that's a pretty popular opinion in our world today. People believe that truth is subjective and therefore relative to individuals, to societies, to people groups. Now, I noticed this young man on his backpack, he had a whole bunch of little buttons, you know, political buttons and different slogans and things. And uh, one of his buttons was a picture of the Twin Towers, and it said, never forget. It was a 9-11 button. It was a picture of the Twin Towers, and it said, never forget. And I said, you know, I noticed your button on your backpack. I said, that's kind of an unusual button to see around UC Berkeley. And he said, well, yeah, I, I would say so. And I said, well, why, why do you have that particular button? And he said, well, you know, I had a family member who was actually killed in 9-11. And I said, wow, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I said, you know, you have this button on your backpack to remember that family member, and it says never forget. And I said, can I just ask you a question? I said, would you say that what those 19 hijackers did on 9-11 was, was wrong? He said, well, absolutely. And I said, now, what's your basis for saying that? And he says, well, everybody knows mass murder is wrong. I said, well, not everybody, apparently. Those 19 hijackers didn't think it was wrong. And the millions of Muslims around the world who cheered them on the day after, they didn't think it was wrong. So obviously, there are some people who would say that that was actually a good thing, a positive thing. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I see your point. I said, well, what distinguishes your view of that event being morally wrong from those 19 hijackers who would say that that was a morally praiseworthy thing to do? And he just sort of sat there for a moment thinking about that. And then I pointed out to this young man, I said, you see, the reality is, is we need some standard greater than ourselves, greater than our own subjective personal opinions and interpretations to determine truth. And he was just sort of sitting there thinking about that. And he said then, well, maybe there is truth. But, but you know what? I don't think we can ever really know it for sure. And I sort of call this the agnostic view of truth. There's a lot of people like this in our world. They would say, no, I think there is truth. But, you know, we can never really be certain of what truth is. You know, we got to be careful about being too absolutist in our views of truth. And you know what, when I, when I encounter people like this, I'm reminded of the, the Canadian geese I see sometimes down on the St. Croix River. I don't know if you've ever been down there, you see these Canadian geese and they're sitting on these ice flows on the St. Croix River. I was just down there two weeks ago, you know, and there was ice on the river and these geese, they were jumping from one ice flow to the next looking for a solid place to land and then that ice flow would give way and they'd jump off and find another one to land on. And you know, a lot of people in our world are like these geese, you know, they kind of just hop around from, from one worldview to the next, looking for a solid, firm foundation, but, but they never quite find it, so they just keep hopping to the next option until that one fails them, and then they go on to the next one. And there are a lot of people that sort of embrace this agnostic view of truth. They believe there's some truth out there, but they haven't quite yet found a firm foundation. Now, friends, as Christians, we believe that there is a standard of truth that can be known. And the message that we stand on and the message that we proclaim to the world as God's ambassadors is that God has spoken. As Francis Schaeffer in his classic book says, he is there and he is not silent. The creator has spoken and has revealed truth to us. And God has revealed truth to us in two primary ways. He has spoken to us through his word, the word of God, scripture, and he has spoken to us through his self-revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so this is our declaration to the world. There is truth that can be known. There is a foundation upon which we can stand. And that truth is found in the word of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at each of these revelations of God this morning together. First of all, how has God spoken to us through Scripture? If you take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Friends, what, that opening line is so interesting to me. Earlier in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to greet his grandmother and his mother who brought him up in the faith. These faithful women of God who championed biblical truth in Timothy's lives, who demonstrated biblical truth through their lifestyle, through their integrity. And Paul says, remain rooted in the word because you know those from whom you learned it. What what a reminder to all of us, you know, our lives matter, our faithfulness matters, our integrity matters as we live out our faith in this world because you know what, there are other people watching, our kids are watching, our grandkids are watching, our friends and neighbors are watching. People are going to learn much of the truth of God's word from what they see in our own lives. So Paul says, stay planted in the word because you know those from whom you learned it. He goes on to say all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed, Paul says. Some of your translations may say all scripture is inspired by God. The the word in Greek, God-breathed, is theonoustos. Theos means God, noustos or pneuma is the word for wind or breath or spirit. In other words, the word of God is the very breath, the very spirit of God breathed out. Now, now how did that work in terms of the, the authoring of scripture? Because scripture was written by human authors, right? But we find the key to that in 2 Peter. If you go to the next slide for me, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Peter tells us, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, God used these human authors. He used their unique personalities, their unique writing styles, their unique backgrounds. He used their human personalities, but he came upon them through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the breath of God inspired the truths that he wanted those authors to convey to us. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired. All scripture is directly from the word of God through the instruments of these human authors. And so since scripture is the word of God, we can trust it. We can be confident in it. God has revealed truth to us, friends. But sadly, many in our world today are either ignorant of the truth. In other words, they don't know God's word. And friends, in that case, that, that's on us, right? That's on, that's on us as the church. We haven't done our job. There are people out there who don't know the truth. Why don't they know the truth? Because no one's told them yet. Romans 10, Paul says, how are they going to know unless someone tells them, right? And so part of that's on us. If there's people out there who are just ignorant of the truth, that's just a, a reminder to us that we need to get out there as ambassadors of Jesus and keep revealing truth to the world. 
So there are some people who are just ignorant of the truth, but there are other people who have heard the truth, but they fail to embrace it because they think they know better, right? And so they're just simply living in outright rebellion against God. Okay, fine, God, you've revealed truth. I believe this is your word. I, I believe the Bible, but you know what? I'm not living it out in my life. I'm not practicing it. And, and they're just living in rebellion because you know what? I just want to do life my way. And, and, and how sad. I mean, when God, our creator, has spoken and revealed truth to us and we just outright ignore it, outright reject it, turn our backs on it, how foolish when the maker of the universe has revealed truth to us. But sadly, so many people do that. But in either case, whether it's ignorance or rebellion, the reality is a life that's not grounded in the truth of God's word is a life that is doomed for destruction. A life not grounded in the word of God is a life that is doomed for destruction. There can be no other way. There can be no other way because when the creator has spoken and says these are the words that lead to life and fullness and happiness and peace, to turn our back on that, it's foolish. And it leads to destruction ultimately. This past month, I was speaking down in Dallas, Texas. My family and I went down to Dallas, Texas together and uh, Saturday afternoon while we were down there, we had some free time and we went down and visited Dealey Plaza the site of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And I'll tell you something, it was a very sobering experience to be in that place where President Kennedy was assassinated. To stand on the very spot they have on the street marked out in green crosses, the very spots where the bullets struck President Kennedy. You can see the second window from the top right is where Lee Harvey Oswald was positioned uh, when he shot President Kennedy. Very sobering experience being there. Some of you may recall that President Kennedy had a son, John F. Kennedy Jr. And many people believe that John F. Kennedy Jr. was destined to follow in his father's footsteps. Many people believe that John F. Kennedy Jr. would one day also serve as one of our presidents of the United States. But tragically, John F. Kennedy Jr. was also killed in a tragic accident. He was flying his private airplane, a single-engine Piper Cub airplane, over the Atlantic Ocean. And his Piper Cub airplane crashed into the Atlantic Ocean, and John F. Kennedy died. John F. Kennedy Jr. died at 39 years old. A life of promise cut short. When they investigated the accident that killed JFK Jr., they discovered that he died as a result of what is known as a graveyard spiral. And if any of you have a piloting background, you may be familiar with the idea of a graveyard spiral, but a graveyard spiral is essentially when a plane is flying and the plane stalls, the engine stalls, and what happens then is the plane actually falls backwards. The nose comes over the top of the tail and the plane begins to spin violently out of control, heading down towards the ground or towards the ocean. And pilots will tell you that when you are caught in a graveyard spiral, what happens is, is as you are looking out the window, the cockpit of the airplane, you will feel like the airplane is spinning left. But because your mind and emotions are going haywire, while you feel the plane is spinning left, the plane in reality is actually spinning right. 
And so to correct what you think is going on in your mind and your thinking and in your emotions, you will actually turn the plane to the right to try to correct the spin and thereby you'll only put the plane into a greater, steeper, more faster spin leading to your ultimate demise. And that's what happened to JFK Jr. Pilots will tell you there's only one way to survive a graveyard spiral. And that is to stay focused on the plane's instruments, the plane's navigation equipment and guidance system. The pilots will tell you that if you look outside the cockpit windows, your mind, your emotions, which are going haywire because of the spinning, will lead you astray. The only way to survive a graveyard spiral is to follow the plane's guidance system, the plane's navigation equipment, because the plane's guidance system doesn't lie. And it tells you the true direction of the plane. And no matter how much it feels contrary to what you're seeing outside you, you need to stay focused on the guidance system of the plane, which will help pull you out of the graveyard spiral. And you know, friends, as I think about that tragic accident and the reality of this graveyard spiral, I think there are many people in our world who find themselves in this very situation. They find themselves stalled out with no meaning or purpose in life. They find themselves spiraling out of control. They find their lives headed for a crash. And sadly, we cannot save ourselves. And many people are putting their trust in their own thinking, their own feeling, their own emotions to, to lead them through life when in reality our thinking, our feeling, our emotions often mislead us, often betray us. And so we need a firm foundation, we need a guide, we need navigation equipment that will lead us safely through life. And thankfully, God has given us that navigation equipment in his word, the Bible. God says that when we trust in the word of God, he will lead us safely through life. The word of God is a firm foundation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful what is it useful for? Paul highlights four points. Number one, it's useful for teaching. In other words, when we study the word of God, we come to know God. We come to know his will for our lives. Secondly, Paul says the word of God is useful for rebuking, for exposing sin. And, and oftentimes, friends, when we read the Bible or when we hear a message in church, the word of God confronts our sin. It exposes our sin. And it highlights for us the ways which we've rebelled against God. But the good news, friends, is God doesn't just rebuke our sins. Thirdly, Paul says, Scripture corrects. It's useful for correcting. And what does Scripture do in its correcting? Well, Scripture doesn't just expose our sin, but it provides a solution for it. So it not only tells us that we're, a sin, that we're sinners, but it gives us the solution Passages like 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad that God not only rebukes our sin, but he also gives us the correction for it? Thank you, Jesus. But fourthly, the Apostle Paul says, Scripture is useful for training in righteousness. And what does that mean? Well, friends, that's the practical application of God's word. Training in righteousness, it's how we apply God's truth to our lives. I think of passages like Romans 12 too. Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
right? That's the practical application. How do I live faithfully and following God's will? You, you transform yourself by the renewing of your mind. You meditate on the truth of God. You study the truth of God. You, you absorb the word of God into your heart, and that will renew your mind. That's the practical application of the word. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God has revealed truth to us, to lead us, to guide us, to bring us safely home. Secondly, the Bible, or secondly, this morning, we know that God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. God has spoken to us through the person of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, God broke into human history, an event that forever split history into B.C. and A.D., when Jesus Christ personally revealed himself to us. You know, that's what the Christmas season is all about, friends. We're entering into this Christmas season, and, and the only reason we have Christmas is because Jesus came into this world to be our Savior, to show us the way to life and life abundantly. That's the only reason we have Christmas, right? As, as the saying goes, Jesus is the reason. You know, and sadly, I, our culture has totally forgotten the whole reason for why Christmas even exists in the first place. And I've, been, I've been walking around my neighborhood at night lately and, and uh, just for my personal exercise. And it's amazing to me how many houses are lit up and, and all these houses with their Christmas decorations. And you see, you know, you see the snowman and you see Santa Claus and you see Rudolph and the Grinch and, and all these Christmas decorations. But the one thing I never see anymore, you never see Jesus. You never see the nativity scenes. You never see the whole foundation for why we even celebrate Christmas. Instead, when you watch TV and the commercials, it's all happy holidays. You know, it's all about presents and gifts. And, and we don't even know why we give presents and gifts. We give presents and gifts because God gave us the greatest gift of all. But the world has completely lost sight why we even celebrate Christmas. It's because Jesus is the reason. But friends, do you know why Jesus came into the world? Do you know why he came into the world? Do you know he tells us why? In John 18, 33 through 38, in the, in the trial scene with Pontius Pilate, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Jesus says, go back one slide for me, please. Jesus says to Pilate, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Why did Jesus come? To testify to the truth. He came to reveal truth to us. A sure foundation to lead us and guide us through life. That's why Jesus came, to reveal truth. But look at Pilate's answer on the next slide. What does Pilate say? What is truth? There it is, friends. The same old question again. What is truth? Friends, what is Satan's oldest trick in the book? Going back to the Garden of Eden, what's his oldest lie? Did God really say? Friends, that's the oldest lie in the book. What does Satan do? He gets us to question truth. And isn't that exactly the same lie being perpetrated in our culture today? Oh, you know, you know God says, you know, did God really say? Did God really say, you know, don't sleep with someone you're not married to? Did God really say, don't cheat people for your own personal gain? Did God really say don't slander another brother or sister in Christ? Did God really say? Friends, at the root of every sin is the questioning of God's truth. The root of every sin. 
And the reason Satan is so intent on attacking truth is because an attack on truth is an assault on the very nature and character of God. Because truth is ultimately rooted in the very person of God, our Creator. That's where we get truth. It comes from His will and His character. God didn't make up truth arbitrarily. Truth is a part of who He is by His very nature. And so Satan attacks truth because in attacking truth, he's attacking the very nature and character of God. If you recall, Jesus came into this world. He says, I have come to testify to the truth. And in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, that's not just a nice little theological statement. There's power in those words. There's power in those words. This past week, you see the white rose here on the stage? This past Tuesday, I had an opportunity to go down to a rehab clinic in St. Paul and spend some time visiting a young man who's in a drug rehab clinic. And as I talked to this young man over the course of an hour, it was very interesting. At one point, he says, you know, Jason, I, I just feel so lost. And I said to him, you know what? Jesus says, I am the way. And as we talked, he said, you know, Jason, I just have so many questions. And I said to him, you know what? Jesus says, I am the truth. And he said, Jason, I, I struggle with my purpose in life. And I said to him, Jesus says, I am the life. And friends, when we trust in Jesus Christ, it makes all the difference in the world. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you find yourself lost or confused or, or looking for purpose. And I'll tell you something, a life grounded in the truth makes all the difference. Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Friends, take a look at these pictures. Let me ask you a question. Which of these two houses do you think is going to stand the test of time? I'm going to put my money on the house built on top of the mountain on the stone foundation. You know what I'm saying? Jesus says the life that is grounded in the word of God, the truth of God, is the life that is built on a firm foundation. And I'll tell you something, friends. My mission as your pastor is going to be to continue to champion the truth of God's word. This will be a church grounded in the truth of God's word. But my question to you, church, is this. Will you join me on this mission? Championing the truth of God's word. It's not always going to be easy. It may not always be popular. Sometimes we may be swimming against the stream of culture. But I'll tell you something, it is the way of blessing. A church alive is a church that is rooted in a firm foundation. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that you have given a sure and steady source of guidance, a source of life, a source of hope and direction. And Jesus, I just pray that each one of us here this morning would make a commitment to keep our lives rooted in the truth of your word. Lord, there might be somebody here this morning who has never embraced 
the truth of your word or the truth of you as our Lord and Savior. And so maybe even here this morning, they would seek to put their faith in you for the very first time. And if that's where you're at today, you can do that by just simply saying a simple prayer in the quiet of your own heart. Jesus, I believe that you came to show me truth. I believe that you came to die for my sins, to give me new life. And Jesus, I want to trust in you. I want to follow you as the source of my leading and guiding through life. Friends, when you put your trust in Jesus, he'll wash away your sins and make you a new creation. And church, I just pray, Lord, for this church that we would continue to be a place that stands in the firm foundation of the word of God. God, help me champion your truth as their pastor and help my friends here have a longing, a desire to grow in the knowledge of your truth. And may we boldly proclaim your truth as we go out into this world as your ambassadors. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.